and welcome to today's podcast, where we will be discussing the latest emerging battleground over ESG. That is, what role ESG considerations should play in the day-to-day activities of state treasuries. I'm Reagan Haas, a member of our ERISA and benefits practice based in San Francisco, and I am joined by Josh Lichtenstein, benefits partner and head of the ERISA fiduciary practice, and Michael Littenberg, partner and global head of our ESG, CSR, and business and human rights practice both of whom are based in New York. And finally, Chung Park, an antitrust partner who is based in our Washington, D.C. office. Welcome, Chung, Josh, and Michael. ESG has taken on an especially prominent place in the workings of state treasuries over the last year. Whether we are talking about selecting asset managers and investments for the state retirement system or contracting with banks to underwrite bond issuances. Politicians on both sides of the aisle have become especially vocal of late, as we have seen a proliferation of new legislation and other rules being proposed and enacted in many states, as well as proclamations and memoranda from state treasurers and attorneys general articulating the contours of ESG and its role in public finance. These initiatives have taken on several forms, including those intended to promote the integration of ESG considerations in investment decisions, those intended to restrict the use of ESG considerations in investment decisions, those meant to promote investment from certain industries, such as fossil fuel or firearms, and those targeting entities that boycott the fossil fuel or firearms sectors. Ropes and Gray has been helping clients to understand and navigate these and other state ESG developments since they very first began to arise. Over a year ago, as part of our ESG Center of Excellence, we started formally and methodically tracking developments in the state. From what began with just a handful of bills, we are now tracking and advising on how to navigate initiatives in over 30 states, some of which have been signed into law and already taken effect. These contradictory state laws and approaches present real challenges to asset managers as they work to comply with their own fiduciary duties to state retirement plan clients, especially where restrictions may prohibit a manager from considering investment factors it would otherwise view as significant for purposes of prudently investing state pension assets. Layered on top of that is the DOL's forthcoming, at least as they keep telling us, final ESG rule, which would provide a framework for ERISA plan fiduciaries for considering ESG factors when evaluating and selecting plan investments. All of this translates into an intricate regulatory web that an asset manager has to work through if it is going to manage money of both public and private sector retirement plans. Josh, you've been tracking these bills closely for a long time now. Could you give us a brief overview of what you're seeing? I'd be happy to, Reagan. As you mentioned, we have seen ESG-related legislation and regulatory guidance in the majority of states now. Some of these bills and initiatives are focusing on whether state pension plans should or should not take ESG considerations into account when making investment decisions, while others are more narrowly focused on only specific ESG issues. A couple of recent examples we've been tracking include Arizona and Florida, both of which have recently revised their investment policy statements. Uh, For Arizona, it was the investment policy statement for the state treasurer's office. And for Florida, it was the investment policy statement for the board that oversees the state retirement plan. To require that all investment decisions will be made based on pecuniary factors. And that expressly does not include environmental, social, and other related factors. On the flip side, 
Illinois enacted a law in 2020 that directs state and local government entities that manage public funds to consider materially relevant sustainability factors, including corporate governance and leadership, environmental, social capital, human capital, and business model and innovation factors uh, when they're making their investment decisions. In other states, uh, we've seen initiatives that have been more focused on one or more specific ESG issues, such as discouraging investments in energy or in certain segments of the energy industry or the firearms industry, or conversely, protecting industries such as the energy industry, as you noted earlier. The adopted legislation that has arguably received the most attention you know, from the public and other parties has been SB 13, a Texas law that took effect in September 2021. The law prohibits Texas public entities, including state pension plans, from entering into contracts with financial companies that boycott energy companies. This summer, the Texas State Comptroller's Office published a list of 10 financial institutions that the state of Texas considers to be boycotters of the Texas fossil fuel industry. And they're no longer allowed to do business with Texas pension funds and other public entities. That includes investments you know, in certain funds, and that also includes just more general uh, contracting. The Comptroller's Office has also flagged 348 funds that they are calling ESG-focused funds, which they believe also boycott the Texas energy sector. But note that this list does not apply more broadly to the managers themselves if they're not on the boycott list. So being on the restricted funds list relates to investments, but doesn't relate to the ability to contract with state. The Comptroller has indicated that this list is subject to change, so we expect to see things added to it over time, potentially on both the restricted parties or boycotters list and also the restricted funds list. We've also seen recent action in Louisiana, where the Treasurer announced on October 5th that the Louisiana Treasury will liquidate all of its investments with a large asset manager by the end of 2022, citing the need to protect the state from alleged harm to the state's energy sector based on that manager's support for ESG investing, and a theory that focusing on ESG is unacceptable under Louisiana state fiduciary law. This is noteworthy because Louisiana has actually unsuccessfully attempted to pass restrictions on ESG investing earlier this year. And now we see the treasurer effectively sidestepping that process and acting to divest on his own. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Maine, which signed a law in 2021 that prohibits the Maine Public Employees Retirement System from investing in the 200 largest publicly traded fossil fuel companies. Interestingly, even within states, it's not always clear exactly how they're aligned around ESG. For example, shortly before SB 13 took effect in Texas, the Teacher Retirement System of Texas incorporated an ESG statement into its investment policy, which said that the Board of Trustees of the Texas Teachers Retirement Plan should consider ESG factors as it makes decisions consistent with its fiduciary duties to control risk and achieve a long-term rate of return for the plan. This policy appears to conflict with the requirements of SB 13. In addition, while Florida has recently prohibited ESG-based investing for its public retirement plans, they have a strong history of supporting ESG-type proxy proposals with the securities that hold in their plans. 
I know we're lawyers and not political commentators, but it sounds like this is fundamentally becoming a red state versus blue state issue. Are we seeing coalitions form between states on these issues? It's a good question, Reagan. As you said, you know, states have been splitting along party lines and ESG pretty broadly. And as of the summer, we have seen states starting to form coalitions. In August, the attorneys general of 19 states, including Georgia, Ohio, Texas, and Utah, sent a letter to a major asset manager regarding its use of ESG factors in managing state investment, uh, including retirement assets. Among other things, the letter accused the asset manager of making decisions based on its climate agenda at the expense of the welfare of the state pensions that were invested. Soon thereafter, state treasurers from 13 different states, plus the New York City Comptroller, published a letter through a trade group for the long term, which asserted that the anti-ESG states are focused on the short term and are actually using these blacklists to obstruct the free market. We can expect that this will continue to become more of a central issue as we enter election season. And only time will tell whether ESG will become a new mainstream political issue like CRT has. Thanks, Josh. Michael, why do you think there has been this groundswell of activity on the state level lately? Well, Reagan, as Josh noted, you know, the split's been largely along party lines. Um, I don't want to get into the merits of the positions, but um, I think the state ESG and IESG debate, it's largely become another front in the culture wars. Uh, so that's a significant driver of the groundswell and activity that we're seeing. Um, underscoring that driver, the battle lines are largely being drawn by politicians, so not by dispassionate bean counters or ivory tower academics, if you will. But I think in fairness to the politicians on both sides of the aisle, um, they're deploying economic and legal arguments in support of their positions. I think part of the fault here and in, in, in why ESG is being weaponized is the fuzziness around exactly what ESG is. Um, there's no single accepted definition or, or construct of ESG. So that means that the term means different things to different people. It's also often thrown about loosely. Um, and on a related point, uh, ESG is arguably also strayed from its initial purpose of just being another lens through which to evaluate financial risk and opportunity. So instead, in many quarters, ESG is being equated with impact investing or with corporate responsibility or with business and human rights, which are all related, but they're somewhat different topics. Unfortunately, I don't see the red state, blue state ESG dichotomy moderating anytime soon. If anything, um, I think it's going to intensify as both the red and blue state constituencies continue to mobilize. Um, so that begs the question of what state ESG 2.0 is going to look like. Um, my prediction is that over the next year, we're going to see uh, more formal and informal ESG-related inquiries from state authorities. Uh, I also predict that we're going to see more blacklists, uh, both from investment mandates and then also more broadly for diversified financial services firms that are seeking to do business with states. Uh, I think we're also going to see a continuing evolution of state investment-related statutes, policies, side letter provisions um, that seek to address ESG more comprehensively. So in other words, the Florida approach or the anti-Florida approach on the other side. Um, I, I think we'll also uh, start to see some ESG-related litigation, um, whether that's on antitrust grounds or fiduciary duty or securities fraud or other investor protection grounds. Um, I, I think that at least initially litigation is going to be primarily red state driven. Um, and litigation, of course, would not necessarily be tied to managing state pension fund assets. One last point that I, I want to make, and I, I think it's very important to 
keep in mind that state ESG developments are just really one part of a very rapidly evolving ESG landscape um, that asset managers not only need to navigate, uh, but they also need to holistically manage. And here I really want to put a double or triple underline or emphasis on holistic management. Um, on the regulatory side, uh, it includes regulation at the federal level, it includes regulation in, in Europe at the EU level, among other jurisdictions. Um, and the regulations include, for example, the expected Department of Labor rules in, in the U.S. that Josh mentioned earlier, as well as SFDR in Europe. But it's not just the regulators, um, uh, you know, at least in terms of legislation. Um, you know, we're seeing Prudential and other regulators also increasing their focus on, on climate risk. It, it still remains to be seen how that uh, ultimately will influence ESG. And then there's, of course, many other factors at play beyond regulation that will influence uh, state ESG 2.0. But, but I think we'll leave those for another time, perhaps another podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's helpful to see how the state ESG issues fit into the larger ESG picture and that this reaches beyond state pension plans. You noted antitrust. Chong, how does antitrust fit in here? Uh, sure thing, Reagan. Uh, as Michael said, the regulation of ESG is becoming highly politicized. And we are seeing that in the form of politicians suggesting that ESG commitments might violate the federal antitrust laws. Frankly, in my view, when you drill down on the substance, the antitrust theories don't appear to hold any water, but they sound good. And they are easy enough for politicians to invoke so they get media attention. To understand why I believe the current antitrust theories here are weak, let's step back a moment to understand why politicians might think that antitrust makes sense. They argue that you have firms that notionally control vast amounts of investments, so they see market power, the critical ingredient for many antitrust claims. And then you also have horizontal firms agreeing or allegedly agreeing not to take some action, and that that action allegedly raises energy prices. So that sounds vaguely like a harm to competition, but that misunderstands the relevant antitrust principles here, as well as the actual facts about ESG investing. As a starting point, the antitrust law that is most relevant here is Section 1 of the Sherman Act. Section 1 prohibits unreasonable agreements that restrain trade. Reasonableness is usually judged under what's called the rule of reason, a balancing test that weighs the competitive harms against benefits of a given agreement. Now, that test in practice is pretty defendant-friendly. But regardless, any antitrust case is no fun if you are a defendant or the target of an investigation. Now, in certain narrow categories, courts will presume that agreements are unreasonable and thus unlawful. These are what are called per se offenses. For example, agreements between competitors to fix prices, rig bids, or allocate markets. Anything where two competitors get together to agree not to compete or to harm competition. These are what are called so-called hardcore antitrust violations that individuals can actually go to jail for. But the biggest significance of per se or hardcore offenses is that a plaintiff or prosecutor only needs to prove 
that a defendant had the agreement itself. They don't need to offer proof that the agreement actually hurt anyone or there are no benefits, etc. So what is the relevance of all this background? The relevance of this is that there's one type of agreement, a quote-unquote group boycott, that is sometimes a per se offense, although the exact contours of when a boycott claim is per se is confusing even for the courts. But recognizing what an advantage it would be to have a per se antitrust claim, ESG critics, including some politicians, have suggested that investment firms committed to ESG principles might now be engaged in such an unlawful, quote-unquote, group boycott. So, Chong, uh, it sounds as if the theory here is that investment managers that represent a significant share of investment assets are depriving energy firms of capital, um, thereby raising prices and hurting consumers. All of that sounds bad. All, all big competitors are doing the same thing, hurting consumers. And so if it's a per se claim, ESG critics think they have a hook. Is that the right way to be thinking about this? That's correct, Michael. But this theory falls apart once you go beyond the surface. For one, a group boycott is only a per se offense when it involves horizontal competitors agreeing to not deal with some third party as a means of harming their competitor. With investment firms that use ESG principles, you don't have that same scenario. Even if those investment firms were boycotting energy firms that don't follow ESG practices, these investment firms aren't competitors to those oil and gas companies. They don't benefit from directly harming non-ESG companies. So whatever quote-unquote boycott there is, it's not about boycotting to gain a competitive advantage. So the group boycott theory doesn't make conceptual sense. To add to that, it also does not appear to be factually accurate. For one, many ESG efforts taken by investment firms concern voting or disclosure and transparency at the companies they're invested in. They are not prohibitions on investing in particular companies. In addition, ESG commitments like the Climate 100 Plus Pledge are also explicitly not binding firms to any particular investment choices. And to add to that, most of the major investment managers out there are still investing in non-ESG companies with their non-ESG funds. So this hardly seems to be a boycott in the first place. So that's the main antitrust theory that's been the focus of ESG critics. Notably, they haven't provided too much in the way of actual details for their case against investment firms that take ESG considerations into account. But even taking what they've said in the best light possible, I think the antitrust claims raised so far are pretty weak. What about companies that do follow ESG principles? Do they face antitrust risks? So companies that choose to adhere to ESG principles could, in theory, face a viable antitrust claim. The obvious basis for such a claim might be if companies use purported quality standards like ESG compliance as a cover for per se activity like price fixing. For example, competitors could agree 
potentially, that they will not make cheaper alternatives to their products and that they will all adhere to some high quality that takes into account ESG. In theory, that might be good, but the antitrust laws generally prohibit firms from entering into horizontal agreements to limit competition on price or the quality of products. Indeed, during the Trump administration, the DOJ briefly investigated car manufacturers for publicly declaring that they would follow California's state auto emission standards, even though the Trump administration had scrapped them at the federal level. Now, that was briefly investigated, controversially, I might add, by the DOJ, and many people saw that as a politically motivated investigation. But beyond the DOJ case, no one has plausibly alleged that any pro-ESG company or firm is actually engaged in a cover for price fixing. It's possible, I guess, but so far we haven't seen it. Thanks so much for sharing all of those insights, Chong. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how all of this continues to play out. We've covered a lot of ground today on what the current ESG landscape is and what the antitrust concerns are. But coming full circle, how should asset managers be navigating this rapidly evolving area? What, if anything, should they be doing now? Well, um, the first step is that they should be calling ropes and gray for help navigating these challenges. Um, but, but seriously, as I noted earlier, I think it's critical for asset managers to take a holistic approach to ESG. Um, so that means an internally coordinated and thoughtful approach to addressing not only regulatory requirements and challenges, but also more broadly across policies, procedures, and contractual undertakings, uh, as well as also fund level um, and voluntary disclosures and communications. Um, in most cases, I think that's still very much a, a work in process, uh, especially at the, the larger the firm and its geographic footprint. Uh, a holistic approach over ESG is also going to be increasingly important uh, as regulatory approaches uh, and also stakeholder views on ESG more broadly uh, further evolve. And I think in many cases also diverge or contradict each other. Uh, a holistic approach certainly I think is going to be important for ensuring regulatory compliance, but more generally uh, a holistic approach to ESG also is going to be increasingly important as a commercial imperative uh, and also as part of effective enterprise risk management. Those are great points, Michael. It's also important for us to remember that for asset managers, navigating contradictory regulatory mandates is nothing new. For example, until the DOL issued its non-enforcement policy of the Trump administration's ESG rule in March 2021, we saw asset managers working to come to terms with how they'd have to change uh, marketing approaches and um, even investment decision-making processes around the use of ESG. Uh, the rule posed particular challenges to managers who were also subject to the EU's pro-ESG rules, including uh, SFDR. We have helped countless managers to thread these needles and are helping clients to do the same as the state ESG landscape continues to evolve and we see more competing uh, requirements and concerns developing. The bottom line is, to the extent that they are accepting money from different investors subject to conflicting regulatory schemes, asset managers will have to be extremely precise, organized, and diligent when it comes to their documentation, their marketing materials, and their operations. Furthermore, it would be wise for asset managers to pay close attention to state activity over the coming months to see how the story continues to unfold. Until the dust finally settles, we think managers are going to want to avoid 
going too far in one direction in order to appease a single group. For example, making big changes to appease the anti-ESG states could mean losing out on other institutional shareholders, including pension funds from states that are pro-ESG, uh, increasingly ERISA plans, and other major institutional investors. Chong, Michael, and Josh, thank you so much. This is a dynamic area of law and practice, and it seems like there will be much to monitor in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Finally, as Josh mentioned, we also have the sleeping giant of the DOL's final ESG rule, which is expected to come out before the end of this year. As part of being at the forefront of ESG and our commitment to ESG thought leadership, we have a significant team that continues to monitor these developments. To stay up to date, we encourage you to subscribe to our state ESG tracker, which you can do by signing up for our dedicated mailing list the state retirement plan ESG updates, which you can find on this transcript and on the Ropes and Gray website. You can also sign up for our ESG and other mailing list at ropesgray.com. In addition, stay tuned for our forthcoming microsite where you will be able to see these developments organized by state and category. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we covered, please don't hesitate to reach out to today's commentators or your usual Ropes and Gray content. You can also subscribe and listen to our podcast on ESG and other matters wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.